Hey, we are jumping into the second chapter of 1 John. 1 John is where we're at. Actually, if you go to the back of the book, the New Testament Revelation, and you go backwards, you'll come to 1 John. It's near the end of the New Testament. If you've got it on your uh, iPad or your phone, then I'd encourage you to pull it up today because we are in a series called Love God. It's a letter that comes from John to Christians, to believers back in that day, and, and actually it's, it's a letter that's to us, but the truth is it is all about God's plan, God's light, God's life, and God's love, and it's as if it was signed by him. Last week we talked about the fact that it's real. That was the message that John was trying to get across. It's real. And if you notice with me, if you're into that uh, book yet, you can see in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the crux of what we talked about last week. He says, that, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim it to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. What he was saying in that passage, and as we talked about last week, John was trying to let these new believers, this early church, he was leaving them this message, it's real. It's real. And the reason I know it's real is because I've seen it, I've touched it, I've heard it, I've experienced it, it's real. John is the last disciple, the last apostle still alive. The others have, most of them, been killed, murdered, martyred for their faith. John is still going, but he knows he's getting down near the end of his life. And so he writes to these believers, but in essence, he writes to us to say, I have experienced it. And 50 years later, I am still saying to you, it's real. It's the real deal. Don't lose faith. Don't give up. It's real. It's real. John had a real experience with Christ. It wasn't secondhand. It wasn't handed down. It was John's experience. And he writes to let us know it can be real for you too. Life with Jesus is meant to be experienced. Think about the disciples. Think about the guy who's writing this book to us, the disciple John. He experienced, along with the other disciples, life with Jesus. They ate with him. They walked with him. They traveled with him. They, they established relationships, friendships with him. They would spend the night at the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. They, they, would, they would travel around. They would hear Jesus speak. They would see the miracles he would perform. They experienced life together. Life with Jesus was a life that was meant to be experienced. It's not a religion. It's not something that you just set aside a couple of hours on a Sunday and there is Jesus. There is my life. Nope. Jesus wants our faith to be something that is experienced throughout the week. Whether you are at work, whether you are at school, whether you are at home, whether you are in the community, our faith is an experience with Jesus. 
And John says, it's real, and you can have that same experience. And this is coming from a guy who, while walking and talking with Jesus, one day Jesus says, hey guys, here's the deal, I'm leaving. And they're like, wait, what? You can't go. We're just getting used to this. This is awesome. You can't leave us. And Jesus has the audacity, can you believe it, to say to them, it's best that I leave. Because if I leave, I'm going to send to you and I'm going to send to every believer who comes after you my spirit so that wherever you go, I am with you. In fact, it'd be the last words Jesus would say on the earth, right, as he ascended into heaven. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How could he say that? Because he was sending his spirit. Why? So that life with Jesus could continue to be experienced. He wants it to make a difference. And John was writing to say, it's real. Well, if last week we talked about the fact that it's real, if I had to give you a subtitle for this week's message, it would be rise above. Rise above. Because think, think about what you have personally experienced in the past few weeks. Think about what you have seen and what you have heard and what you have touched. Think about what your life's experience has been. On a nationwide and a worldwide level, think of what our experience has been. In politics, we've seen the splintering of our nation. The, the first guy that I had the chance to vote for was a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan. And he won in a runaway. At the same time, the House of Representatives was represented by a completely different party than Ronald Reagan's party. And the guy running it was a guy, I didn't know much about him, his name was Tip O'Neill. Okay, you could not have two people that disagreed with each other more than Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Yet history records that at the end of the day, they got together. They got together, had a drink in the Oval Office, and would talk about anything other than politics. I do not think that is happening today. <laughs> I do not think that's the way the day ends. And even in, uh, even in the Democratic Party, when you have a debate, seemingly much of the debate is about what the other people cannot do, not about what I'm going to do. It, it, it's as much about tearing down someone, devaluing the office. What about sports? We've had the death of an NBA icon. That, that affected the world in such a unique way. It was just interesting to me that it wasn't an, that wasn't an ESPN story. That was a worldwide national news, top of the news story. And maybe it's because, maybe it's because when his death occurred, it occurred with his daughter. And there were other seven other families whose world was rocked in that tragedy that occurred just a few Sundays ago. You, you have a World Series that's called into question because evidently a team skirted the rules. 
decided there was a way that they could have one up. Now, here's the deal. I did tell my wife this. Honey, it wouldn't matter if they told me what pitch is coming, when it's coming, and when I should swing when it gets there. I'm still missing it. You throw anything at me 100 miles an hour, and I'm ducking to get out of the way. But, no doubt, man, you could tell from the interviews, other teams, other players, they are mad. I don't even have it up there, but this whole coronavirus, worldwide. And, and yes, seemingly, the United States has, has had some control over it, which is a great thing for our country and our nation, but yet we have citizens around the world, and they're stuck. Stuck in the Far East, stuck on a boat. What's going on with that? And even within our own denomination, I seemingly have seen far too many tweets and Instagrams tearing ministers and ministries down rather than elevating the name of Jesus. And in case you wonder, because some of you are out there recognizing Beth Moore, who has she been tweeting about? No, she has been the tweeted not the tweeter. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so forget on a national level, though. What about your life? A little upside down? You, you don't have coronavirus, but I know some of you. You have, you have been suffering through the flu, the sickness, the crud, whatever it is, and it seems like it's been weeks, right? And, and you're okay. You're not knocking on death's door or anything, but it has been a struggle to get better. And as soon as you're done, you've passed it on to somebody else in your family. Now you got to help nurse them back to health. And somebody else that you know of, your mom, your dad, sick. You... We've had people who've passed away. And they're going through not just discouragement, but to a certain extent even depression because they've lost a loved one. You have experienced disrespect maybe at work. You've worked at this job for a long time, a number of years. You should have gotten that promotion, and this person over there got it, and they've worked half the time that you have, and they put in half the effort that you do, and somehow they just completely left you out of the loop. How, 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 whether in a world, in a nation, in a family, or as a person, how do we rise above the disrespect, the discouragement, the distrust, the division, the depression? How do we rise above that? Glad you asked. I want to take you back to the first letter that John wrote. That's the Gospel of John. So from your New Testament, you're going Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the first letter that he put together. And in so much of this letter, he lays the foundation for what he's going to say in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which he wrote a couple years later. But notice what it says in John chapter 13, verse 34. John is quoting Jesus. This is Jesus talking, and this is what he says. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. 
if you love one another. Let me say that to you again. By this, and this is coming from Jesus, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everyone will know that you are my followers. Everyone will know that you believe in me by the way that you love one another. Not by all the reading you do, not by the fact that you have the loudest voice, not by what you tweet or what you throw out on Instagram, not the pictures that hang in your wall or the cute little sayings that are in your bedroom. They'll know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. And when you want to talk about rising above, all of the loud discourse and the discouragement and the depression and to and even a sense the decadence of our world. You want to rise above the disrespect. Jesus says, let me give you away. Love. The way that I've loved you, that's how I want you to love. John uses three words a lot in all of his writings. The words are life, love, and light. In the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in, in that book, he is writing about the life of Jesus. He is writing his experiences as he saw them and heard them. He is writing how Jesus is the light, how Jesus is eternal life, how Jesus is love. But in 1 John the book that we're studying, he is writing to other believers about how they are to be the light and life and love of Jesus in the world. And that's, in essence, what he says. If you were to ask people the world over, even non-believers, non-church people, one word, describe Jesus. There'd be all kinds of words that people would come up with. But my guess is, my guess is, that if you were to take a poll, the word that would be the highest percentage of the word used would be love. Jesus is love. I think, didn't the Commodores have a song, Jesus is love? We all thought, they're born again. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is love. He's love. Now, if you were to ask the same people who took the poll, what about Christians? What's a word that you would use to describe Christians? I can almost guarantee you, we would not get the same percentage of people to say love. In fact, is it not possible that some of the people who were polled would say hate is the word more closely associated with Christians? Jesus love. And what did Jesus tell his followers? I want you to love the way that I have loved. But yet the world would not necessarily look at church folk as being evidence of God's love. Why is that? Why is it so hard? If, if love is what would enable us to rise above why is it so difficult? Let me, let me give you just two or three reasons. First one is this. 
the definition of love. The definition of love. Think about, think about all the things that you love, okay? I love Coke, all right? Think I showed that to you last year, last week. I had a bottle of Coke, right? It was my illustration. I love Coke. I love uh, fried chicken, specifically from, well, Kroger has really good chicken. I'm throwing out, is there any way we could get a commercialization of that or something? They could pay me for advertising on I like Kroger's fried chicken. It's very good. I, I like chicken from the damn side in up in Pelston, Michigan. It's a wonderful restaurant. I encourage you to try it. I like chicken at Zender's or the Bavarian and in Frankenmuth. I love fried chicken. I love my wife. Well, now wait a second. <laughs> Do I love my wife the same as I love fried chicken? Well, no. Well, then why do I use the same term to describe the fact that I love fried chicken and I love my wife? You can understand that if I just somehow spin that the wrong way, she might take that the wrong way. Our definition of the word doesn't quite do it justice. I love the Red Wings. I love my children. Do I really love the Red Wings and my children on the same level? No, no, I don't. I don't, no. <laughs> but we use that word, don't we? And, and is it possible that we use the word so much that we've just kind of carelessly flipped it around and it has lost its value? The word that John uses, actually, the Greek word is agape, and it is actually a divine love that God has for humanity. Well, now that ratchets it up a bit. That steps up the definition of love. And that's the love that he's talking about in 1 John. So many different areas in which we use the word love, it's just kind of become watered down. Here's another reason why maybe it's difficult for us to grab a hold of what Jesus said and actually step up in love. Discarded love. Not just the definition of love, but discarded love. You've experienced that. You've had love rejected. You see, we can reject love just as easily as we can accept love, can't we? And sometimes it happens pretty quick. You know who would know that? Jesus. A few weeks from now, April 5th. See how many of you are on your spring calendar. What do we celebrate on April 5th? Huh? Palm Sunday. Yeah. Palm Sunday. Now, why is it called Palm Sunday? Because on that Sunday, people were laying down. Oh, man, you are hot today. They were laying palms down as Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem. As he rode through on that donkey, they are crying out, Hosanna. They are lifting their hands. This is an awesome, this is a ticker tape parade through the streets of Jerusalem. The disciples are eating it up, and in five days, he'll be dead. Because of he's crucified on Calvary's cross. In five days, in the same place. Wow. Wow. Talk about rejection. Love can be discarded. And here's the thing. If your love has been rejected, 
it affects the way you love. It affects the way you accept love. And it, ex- it affects the way you give love. And if your love has been rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected, you just kind of put up a wall. It's not easy. It's easier to be just the loudest voice. Now, I can talk pretty loud, even without a mic. I mean, even if I turn this mic off, Now, my dad did it a couple times. There were a couple times when I heard him use, in the name of God, stop. And boy, whoever it was that was walking, they stopped and everybody else around him. He had that kind of voice. But I can get pretty loud if I need to. I can be the loudest voice. And Jesus says, Billy, shut up. Because that will do absolutely nothing to bring people to me. All the world's going to know is you're loud. Not going to know anything about love. Maybe the hardest one is the demands that love puts on us. And John writes about that in the second chapter of 1 John. If you've got your Bible, look at 1 John chapter 2. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me, but check this out. This is what it says. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one. You've heard from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer... That person is still living in the darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go. This is the same guy who wrote in the Gospel of John that Jesus said, I am the way. He says they've been blinded by the darkness. I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to those of you who are young in the faith because you've won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. And I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I've written to you who are young in the faith because you're strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Seems like he is re-emphasizing what he said. He's kind of putting an exclamation point on it. And what he is basically saying is in, in in and out of every season, love. Verse 7, if you're taking notes, write this down. He, he, he shares the emphasis on love. He describes both the old 
and the new. This, this is an old commandment, he says. This is something you've heard from the very beginning. Love is found in the Old Testament. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then, when you go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're wondering who's saying it, the verse concludes by saying, I am the Lord. Two distinct instances where the command is given, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. What's the problem? The problem is that in the Old Testament, they're mutually exclusive. And people could actually think, I can say that I love God with everything that I've got, and if I don't by chance love my neighbor as myself, well, that's no big deal because that's secondary. Jesus comes along and he ties the two together. And that's what makes it new. John says, you've heard this from the beginning. This is part of scripture that you studied. Old Testament. But Jesus came along to reiterate Combine the two together, and he added a little phrase that just really puts the rubber on the road. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and here is one that is just as important. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Wow. And that was a radical message in Jesus' day. And here's the thing, it still is. You want the church to make the biggest difference in our culture, in our country, in our world? Then the church needs to rise up and say, we will love as Jesus has commanded us to love. We will not seek to be the loudest voice. We will not seek to win the argument. We will seek to love as Jesus commanded us to love. And how did Jesus love? He laid his life down. That's how he loved. He gave his life. And Jesus says, here's, here's what I'm commanding you to do. Why did he have to make it a new commandment? Because it was new. It was a new approach. It was a new way of living. Love God. And the way that you prove you love God, you love others as you love yourself. The problem that Jesus had with the religious folks of his day is that they were adding to the burden of the people with no relief, no comfort, no arm around their shoulder saying, we'll help you through this, no hugs, no love. Instead, they were simply adding to the burden that people were already born into. And so Jesus comes along to say, I love you unconditionally. And that's the problem that the religious folks had with Jesus. Wait, isn't it based on what you do? Isn't it based on what you don't do? In fact, if we base it on what we don't do, then we're really spiritual. We're right up there next to God because we don't do this and we don't do that and we don't do this. 
Jesus says, yeah, you also don't love. They're not going to know you're my followers by all the things you don't do. They're going to know you're my followers by what you do, by how you love, how you are the hands and the feet of Jesus. You want a culture-changing church to believe in and to be part of? Then let's be a church that rises above by loving the way Jesus loved. That's radical. So radical, in fact, that I can hear a pin drop in this auditorium because you're not really sure you want to jump that far in. Not a lot of amens on that one. I don't know if I want to commit. It's easier to be loud. It's not going to bring anybody to Jesus. What's going to change the world, Jesus said, is if they see how you love one another. John, James... Remember when I called you and Peter? Yeah. And you were fishing. Remember all those fish? We, yeah, yeah. And then remember we, were, we walked into town. And you remember the next guy we picked up? Uh-huh. Yeah. Who was it? Matthew, the tax collector. <laughs> yeah. Remember that, Matt? We picked you up. And I said, hey, why don't you follow? Remember you guys were like, wait a second. This is the guy we pay our taxes to. He's always overcharged. And remember what we did that night? John, what did we do? We went to his house for dinner. Yeah, remember? You thought, man, should I call my mother and see if I can go in here? I don't even know if I'm allowed. Bartholomew, you remember what you said when somebody came and told you about me? Uh-huh. What'd you say? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. Yeah. <laughs> here I am. They're going to know, guys, by the way you love. That's what's going to set you apart. That is what's going to help you rise above. And while Jesus makes it a new commandment, God desires that it become a permanent commitment. That's what John's writing about. Realize that when John writes this, he is about 40 to 50 years past the time of walking and talking with Jesus. He is now an elder statesman. He is probably the pastor of the church in Ephesus when he writes this book. He's been around, and yet decades later, he is still writing to say, guys, it is love that makes a difference. It's love that calls people to Christ. It's love that helps us rise above. And John has allowed that love of Jesus to become a permanent fixture in his life. That's not easy, but you can do it. You want to know how I know you can do it? A lot of you are parents, have been parents, will be parents, were parents. When you were raising your kids, you know that it's against the law to neglect your children. Did you know that? It is. It's against the law. How many of you woke up in the morning and said, oh, honey, oh, my goodness, you better go wake up the kids so we can get them breakfast and get them off to school. We don't want to get arrested. Is that really your thought process? Now, the only reason I'm doing this is because I don't want the cops to come. No. In fact, you got into a routine. You did the same routine nearly every day. Why? Because the commitment to love became just a permanent part of your life. You desired to take care of them. It's not an afterthought. Love is not an afterthought. 
hits at the heart of the matter starting the beginning of our journey of faith with Christ. In verse 8, John gives to us the example of love. And it's Jesus. He says, Jesus lived the truth of this commandment and you are living it too. Are they living it as good as Jesus? No, but he's imploring them, encouraging them, live it like Jesus. Live it like Jesus did. Think about the way that he loved. He loved his friends. He loved those that were closest to him. He loved Peter, even though Peter was unhinged. <laughs> but he still loved Peter. He loved Matthew, even though he was a tax collector and had probably overtaxed some of the people that he was going to walk and talk with. He loved James and John, the guy who's writing this, and his brother. Jesus is the one who called them sons of thunder, not because it came up with a beautiful name for a tag team wrestling group. He wasn't naming that. He was calling them sons of thunder because they were always out front and a little belligerent. And even when you read through the New Testament, you find that these two came to Jesus and said, you know what? They haven't reacted very well. How about if you just call down fire and destroy the city? That's John, the guy who's writing this. And Jesus called them sons of thunder because they had a ways to go. But he loved them. He loved them. He loved those that followed after him. Mark chapter 8 tells us that on one occasion he taught for three days and thousands of people were there. And the Bible says he had compassion on them. He fed them. He didn't just feed a few thousand one time. Read through the New Testament and count up how many times he did that. And he knew some of them were just coming along for the free happy meal. He knew that. He fed him anyhow. He loved him. He loved his family. The family that at one point in time wanted to have him committed because they thought he'd lost his noggin. He was off his rocker. They were like, get the men in white coats to this guy. You want to know something when you read the New Testament? You read a book called James. That's his brother. James became a believer after the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to him and said, hey, bro, I don't know if he called him bro, but maybe. The rest of that family, read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Acts. You'll find that Jesus' brothers and sisters, the same ones that wanted to have him committed, they were all in the upper room with the disciples, praying and praising, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. He loved his family. And you want to know the real kicker? And this is where the demand really hits home. He loved those who needed to be forgiven. And while that includes all of us, a group that he specifically prayed for were the ones who put him on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They have absolutely no idea what they're doing. He loved them. The example of love. Finally, verses 9 through 11, we have the experience of love. 
He says it doesn't matter whether you're young or old. doesn't matter whether you are a first-time believer in Christ. It's just been a few days. Or whether you've been saved for decades. Whatever season of life you're in, love is to make the difference. And love will help you rise above the circumstance of that season. Let me say that again. Love will help you rise above the circumstance of that season. In the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 11, he says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And then he shares this passage, and we're going to close with this passage of Scripture today, so we're, we're wrapping up. But I want to read it for you, and I'm going to read it to you from the message. And the reason I'm going to do that is because this translation just kind of puts it right in my face. Practical. Talking about love, we can do that all the time because we use love so flippantly. Fried chicken, red wings. He says, let me show you what love is. Verse 19, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, excuse me. The way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. You're like, where is John getting that? Jesus. He raised the game to a whole other level when he spoke that message, Sermon on the Mount. And he talked about the fact that, you know, you pat yourself on the back because you haven't committed adultery. How many of you thought about it? Well, then you've done it. You pat yourself on the back because you've never killed anyone. Congratulations. How about anger? You ever had hatred in your heart? Then it's just the same. Pew. John reiterates that. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see a brother or sister in need and have means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. Here's the in-your-face part. And you made it disappear. My dear children, Let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of, and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves. We're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch out our hands and receive what we asked for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command. To believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command. And as we keep his commands... We live deeply and surely in him, and he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us, by the Spirit 
he gave us. Seek to love. So when we look for opportunities to love, we rise above. Jesus died on the cross, and he died on the cross unconditionally. He knew people would reject him. He knew some of the same people that had dropped palms on Sunday were crying, crucify him on Friday. And yet he died anyhow. He knew some wouldn't accept his gift of love, and he died anyhow for them. He knew we'd mess up. He knew we'd take the wrong path. We'd choose the wrong thing. He died anyhow. He knew that some would spiral out of control. And he died anyhow. Because he knew that each person had great value. Why? Because you were created in the image of God. And he died because he loved you that much. Now, let me just say this in closing. Rising up. Rising up in love. Rising above in love. <laughs> Doesn't mean giving everybody a free pass. Doesn't mean that you enable someone, that you allow someone to walk all over you. You just do whatever you want. I love you, man. No, that's not what John's saying. I can, I can love someone and still disagree with them. The problem in our world, because of all things social media, we are beginning to move into an age where, well, if you disagree with me, then you don't love me. Well, fortunately, that's not true. Because there have probably been times in all of our lives where God has disagreed with us. And maybe even a time or two in your life where you've disagreed with God. Guess what? It didn't change anything. He loved you anyhow. He loved you anyhow. You can love and still disagree. Going back to that parent analogy. Anytime you've ever told your kids no, I, I, please, you know, it, if you're having a hard time with that, we need to have a parenting conference. Yes, there's times you've told your kids no. I hope so. Why? Because you're looking out for what's best for them. You're not saying no because yeah, I just don't like you today. No, you're saying no because you do. You love them. No, you can't go out in your sandals and tie a rope to the bumper of a car and slide down the road in the snow at night in shorts. No, I hate you. <laughs> Slam the door. So what'd you do? Pack a bag and leave? Well, I'm done. They hate me. No. You're still the parent. Didn't change your love for them. In fact, it was because you loved them. You disagreed. It is okay to disagree. Just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I don't love you. The two are not mutually exclusive. They can be together. And the problem is our culture is becoming one in which everybody says, well, you don't agree with me, so you really don't love me. 
It's not true. You could disagree. You could disagree in love. Later in the book of Ephesians, a guy by the name of Paul wrote this. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we can speak truth in love. Speak truth in love. And just so he makes sure we get the description, a couple of verses later he says, so here's what you need to do. You need to get rid of the rage, get rid of the wrath, get rid of the anger, get rid of the malice, remove all of that, and then you got a decent chance of speaking truth in love. Why? Because love is the only thing that's going to help you rise above. There is always going to be discouragement. There is always going to be disrespect. There is always going to be depression. There's always going to be disagreements. So who wins? The loudest voice? No, Jesus says, love wins. That's how they'll know you're my followers. And we can argue that till we are blue in the face. It is not going to change the word of God or what he said. And the problem we will argue it is because we know, the, the reason we'll argue it, and the problem we have with arguing it is because we know how difficult that really is. It is easier to argue. It is easier, easier even in the church amidst denominations to fight amongst ourselves than it is to really live out what Jesus said. And that's why he said it. Got to make it a commandment, guys, because at times it needs to be your will over your emotion. Will over emotion. Now, a good relationship, you're going to have both of that, right? Okay, I, I have emotional love towards my wife. Not all the time. When she cackles like a witch at three in the morning and I wake straight up out of bed, <laughs> praying to God there's not an ice pick in her hand. <laughs> Oh, man. When she kicks me and says, roll over, you're snoring too loud. I was in such a good sleep. I don't care that I wasn't allowing you to sleep. Don't make me roll. It's not always an emotional lovey-dovey. It is emotional, but sometimes it's just a decision to love. That's the same with your kids. You don't always feel like being the mom of the year. Right? You don't always feel like being the great dad that you are. There are days when you're like, oh, come on. I've heard mom, mom, mom one too many times. You want to know something? You love anyhow. Why? Because it's, you've chosen. It's, it's your will that's making that decision. Your emotions will follow. They'll do something cute within an hour. You'll think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread again. And that's why Jesus says, you've got to make it a commandment because not everybody's going to be lovely. And not everybody's going to agree with you. Not everybody's going to drive like you do. You've got to love them anyhow. Love. All right. 
we got to be done. He thinks this is so important, he jumps into chapter 4, and we're going to cover that next week, so we're just kind of continue this thing on love. Doesn't mean you have to get walked on or enable someone to walk on you. But it does mean you choose love, even when it's not the easiest. Even when you'd rather argue. Even when you're right. <laughs> you choose love. Bow your heads together with me in prayer.